Do we start? Look at this news. <laughs> wow. News happened. That's how we break it. I was late arriving, but, uh, you know, apparently things happened while I was trying to get to work today. No more Mike Babcock. Are you surprised by that at all? Yes and no. I think, um, I mean, they've been struggling. Yeah. No, no question about it. But uh, I just, you feel like the contract attached to Babcock just would buy him more time, but wow. I guess the timing makes sense. It is a copycat league. <laughs> and uh, what did our producer, Cam Barra, just tell us? It was one year ago today that the St. Louis Blues made their coaching change. Yeah, and that worked out. Yeah. So the Leafs are following the Blues model? Why yes. not? Who knows? They're built a little differently, though. Yeah, slightly different. Yeah. And I wonder how much of the Tyson Berry situation played a part in this. There is probably a bit. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's so many moving parts on this. Um you, you do know that right from the start with Kyle Dubas taking over that at any opportunity to bring in his guy, Sheldon Keefe, that would happen at some point. So it was almost inevitable. A little surprised at the timing. At the same time, the, and the Leafs are really struggling. They, yeah. are, they are in a bit of a tailspin, and this is a move that they feel like they, they want to save their season. This is, this is really big for the general manager, and I would say it puts more pressure on Kyle Dubas now. The, the pressure is squarely on his shoulders. Should we start? The podcast, or does does this count as a start? I don't. Know. I, I I was here a long time ago. I was here when fifteen minutes before we said we would start, and you arrived five minutes after we said we would start. So yeah, it's, it's a fine day. No, it's, it's uh, my, my apologies. Money on the board. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get um. What, next time we go for lunch, I'll get the lunch. How about that? Sure. Does that work? It Cam works. Was I doubt it though. <laughs> well, you're a busy schedule. You don't have time for us peasants anymore. True. <laughs> All right, let's get the pod going. This is the Canucks Pod with Safiar Shah and Alex All. Welcome to the Canucks Pod. I'm Safiar Shah with Alex Ald. Well, Aldi, this is a Canucks Pod, but the biggest story today, we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon. So when this comes out, It'll be maybe after the Preds-Canucks games. We haven't seen that game yet, and the news is fresh. Mike Babcock fired as head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And not to spend a lot of time on a Leafs topic, but if you're seeing the Toronto Maple Leafs make a big move with their head coach, not to say Travis Green's in the crosshairs all of a sudden with the team's slumping, but it kind of tells you in today's NHL, no matter how much your contract, how good it might look, nobody is safe. I can't believe you took this Toronto firing to now putting Travis Green in the crosshairs. That is so Vancouver media. It is, isn't it? Now I'm on the periphery. periphery I can say you that. You see it on the outside. No, I I get it. I mean, it, it is it is the National Hockey League. It's mm-hmm. the nature of the beast. You got to win, right? And, and it's about the results. Um, what have you done for me lately? And it is, this is something coming out of Toronto. Obviously, I'm going to say, regardless of what else happens the rest of this week, it's the biggest story of the week. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is a massive news story. Uh, when it comes to the sport, and you look at the fact that it's the Maple Leafs, the fact that it's Mike Babcock, the fact that he has that that massive contract tied to him, um, there are so many aspects about this that make this very, very timely. It's something to discuss. So I agree. I mean, if you're struggling, if you don't meet expectations as a coach in the National Hockey League, you know it is about winning. And we talked about this before the season started at length. That this is this is a big mm-hmm. year for Travis Green and the coaching staff, and that it's supposed to be a year where the team takes a massive step. Something's supposed to come to fruition. It's either make the playoffs or be extremely close and miss out because it's a it's a sort of elevated Western Conference rather than last year being that depreciated point totals and how the Canucks sort of stayed in the fight late because almost by default, it's a different story this year. So you look around the league and there are number of coaches in, in similar types of situations and and if the Canucks can't break out of the, the the funk that they've been in through November then who knows right yeah and and I bring that up not to say that Travis Green's job is on the line but it's kind of to show you that no matter how big a contract a coach has in a Canadian market longevity is not easy to come by but I will say there is a big difference between the front office relationship and the head coach in Vancouver and the one in Toronto. And that's kind of where I wanted to focus this, this discussion around because we know it's very evident at this point, Dubas 
and maybe to some extent Shanahan and Dubas did not see eye to eye with Mike Babcock in terms of what players to acquire and what style of play they should be having with the team that they put together. And not that the head coach and the, and the GM have to see eye to eye on everything. I think it's actually healthy to have some level of disagreement and discourse about things so you can have different perspectives. But we know in Vancouver is really different. Pretty much any player that Travis has wanted, whether it was two years ago, he wanted guys like Beagle, he wanted guys like Roussel, the team went and acquired them. He mentioned what he wanted for style of players this year. They go and get JT Miller, Tyler Myers, and also Michael Furlan. Guys who kind of fit the way Travis wants his team to play. So even though the pressures might be similar insofar as being in a Canadian market, the relationship between the GM and the head coach is far different in Vancouver than in Toronto. Well, the GM hired the coach, yeah, right? So th- that's a big difference in Toronto, obviously. Mike Babcock was in the position uh, bef- before Kyle Dubas. So that is, that is something where you it was a unique situation in Toronto. And I think as time went along and Kyle Dubas sort of um, built his credibility and gained his confidence and, and gained further trust of the organization, then he gained more power. And as Babcock went along and was unable to get the results that he wanted, then Dubas was able to make this move at some point. And when I look at, when I look at the Canucks, you're, you're absolutely right. Travis Green is very much in on, whether he's actually in on every moment and every player personnel decision, I don't know, probably not. He's right. got other things to do. But it is stylistically, it does seem like Jim Benning and Travis Green are in lockstep. There is some synchronicity to what they are doing and what they want to accomplish. They share a common vision for what the team is going to do and the way they're going to play on the ice. So therefore you bring in players that fit that mold and, and fit the, the style of play that the coach wants. And, and so that is a, that is a massive difference from, from what we've seen in Toronto the last couple of years and what we've seen in Vancouver. And I'm not sure if the right answer is for a GM to do everything the head coach wants, because uh, you've played in the national hockey league coaches, their feelings on players can change week to week, month to month, year to year, you know, pretty drastically depending on performance, situation, context, all these things that go into it. So I'm not sure if the best situation is for a GM to get every player the coach wants, but that there has to be a mutual understanding philosophically at the very least. Well, I think that's it. It's, it's a more of a bigger picture situation. It's, it's not the day-to-day. It is more philosophical. It is more stylistic. It's more in the way that the, the coach wants the players to play. And so if the GM and coach are in alignment, then, then you can go along with sort of a, a rough framework that then the GM has to fill in the pieces and then the coach has to utilize those pieces and put them on the ice best of their ability. And at the end of the day, like it hasn't, it's not like it's been exactly what Travis Green has wanted. I mean, I'm sure Travis Green would have loved to have a better decor earlier on in his tenure here in Vancouver, but it wasn't something that Jim Benning was, was able or willing to do or whatever. Like we don't know what deals potentially were there or weren't there. And, and, and also people change and people learn as they go along. But you're right. I mean, the, the coach can't have too much say. I, I think that's important as well. There has to be that, that hierarchy in place. There has to be the pecking order. But the coach has to, should have some influence over what is going on. And, and again, in terms of the style of play, it is the coach who's going to have a game plan and he's going to be asking the players to execute that game plan. So you should give him some input in terms of what are the types of players that are going to be going out there and he's going to be asking to execute. And, and the interesting thing, taking it back to Toronto, is, you know, I, I look at the way that team has been built and it's very much based on analytics. It's, it's based on what Kyle Dubas has had success with in, in junior hockey and in the American Hockey League in terms of how he wants to build a team. And Mike Babcock, in a lot of ways, is very opposite to that. And, and he's a more traditional old school type of thinker, um, a little bit more on gut and and you know, he's had success. It's, it's quite some time ago now, other than on the international stage that he won his Stanley cup. So I'm not taking anything away from Mike Babcock. I just don't see that in, in too much of an alignment. And the interesting thing to me though, is what Kyle Dubas has wanted to do and execute it on is very much skill-based. Now we all agree that skill is important. Yet when you, when you listen to players speak and you listen to a lot of coaches talk, and especially here in Vancouver. So I'm wondering if I'm a little bit skewed because I'm hearing what the Canucks are saying. But it's very much when they talk about a team being difficult to play, it's how they're big and they're heavy. And that is something that we've heard over and over and over again during Travis Green's tenure here in Vancouver is he, he wants to be that heavy team. He wants to be the team that wears you down. And so it's, it's really interesting to study sort of the, these two different styles. They, they contrast. Obviously, everyone would love to have the star power and the skill level that the Leafs top end players have. But you've also got to have some balance in that lineup. So you see that sort of being part of the issue as well in Toronto. 
some of the problems the Canucks have had recently are very similar to Toronto's because of some of the injuries Vancouver's had and the guys have been out of the lineup. Tyler Mott, who plays a physical, good down low along the boards, even though he's not the biggest guy, he plays a certain style of game that, that helps you win those types of battles. Jay Beagle, who came back to the lineup the other night, but he's also one of those players, of course, who fits a certain style. Brandon Sutter's been injured. No Michael Furlan, also Antoine Roussel. All of a sudden, the Canucks have some skill, but... They're not cycling the puck well enough. They're not winning those battles below the hash marks or whether it is um, right next to the wall. Regardless, the Canucks aren't finding ways to win those battles and start a cycle in the offensive zone. So you see the team transition the puck decently at times, but as soon as it goes into the offensive zone, you can't maintain possession. So it's one thing to have those skilled players, and you need them, absolutely. But when you don't have the puck, how are you defending? That's a big part as well. And the other part is when you are getting zone entries, do you have those guys to win the battles? And one of the problems the Canucks have had in recent games, in my estimation, with all these injuries, is the lack of battle and being able to maintain possession in the offensive zone. Well, and what ends up happening when you when you remove even just the slightest amount of grit out of your lineup, you just it's that next guy, right? Who's the next wave? And we we talked about this uh, earlier on this year on on the podcast where we talked about how you know it's sometimes that first four checkers in there and the next guy's not there. Yeah. And when the player is there, then everyone's like, all right, what I'm doing is worthwhile. And it's amazing how fleeting that feeling of confidence can be, even for professionals, when it doesn't go well for you. And so guys get out of out of uh, sync a little bit. They're out of position in terms of where they've, they're used to playing in the lineup, where they feel they have good chemistry with their line mates and confidence is high. And I, I have a feeling confidence can be a recurring theme all season yes. long here. Because it, it's going to... When, they're, when the team's playing well, they're going to have a ton of confidence. When they're not, they're not going to, and, and they're going to be part and parcel to each other. It's, it's, they're going to be byproducts of each other. But the point I'm getting at is that things just really happen and click, and oftentimes it's that second or third guy in on the forecheck who mm-hmm. keep the play alive. And then it's that next, that next wave, it's that extra added pressure that comes into play, and then, okay, we can, we can get something going. And even if they don't score on that shift, the line feels good about it because they spent most of the time in the offensive zone, and they were able to have sustained pressure. Then the next line comes out, and they're able to do that as well. If you have one weak link on a line, or one that isn't just reading and reacting quite as quickly, then all of a sudden you're chasing. And the game is no fun when you're chasing the puck back into your own end, and especially when it ends up in the back of your own net. It, it, it starts to feel like it's futile, right? Everything you're doing, isn't it's, it's almost pointless because it's just going to end up back behind your goalie. And all of a sudden that snowballs too into guys trying to do too much, and it, it's a really dangerous, slippery slope. And so I, I agree, you get a couple of these injuries, even though they're not like your key point producers, they're guys who filled some important roles on the lines they were on. When slotted in correctly, they, they were pivotal to that line's success. And even though some of those guys were fourth-line guys or third-line guys, it all adds to the framework of your team, and it all has to work together or else things get out of sync. One of the things we mentioned is the new way of defending the National Hockey League is to keep the puck in the opponent's side of the ice. And one of the things the Canucks have done a lot less of recently is keeping the puck in the other end. And when you force guys like Tyler Myers and Edler to defend in their own zone consistently, well, that's where they can get exposed. Edler's not the fastest guy anymore. Myers has a lot of strengths, and I like his game, and I'm very encouraged by what I've seen. But if he's got to stay in his own zone and start chasing guys, you're not putting him in a position where he can be the best version of himself. So when you are the head coach and you're trying to play this style, can you make any short-term adjustments which might change how you're playing so you can be a bit more competitive than you've been having lost seven out of eight games. Well, you can. And, and I'll be curious to see where this goes because at the end of that Dallas game, which is an unmitigated disaster, the, the D pairs did get mixed up. They were, they were trying to find some other chemistry, something else, something that'll work. And, and I, I kind of had two trains of thought on this. Are they going to go forward with those pairs? Or is it something where it's like, all right, this isn't working. Let's just shake it up for now and then go back to it. And Sometimes you go back to the old pairings after a game like that and, and that, you know, just the third period or second period of a change-up is enough. It is interesting, though. Like, I don't think any defenseman is at their best when they spend the whole time in their mm-hmm. own zone. Yeah, like that, that, that's fair. It, at the end of the day, you're right. It is, it is so much about puck possession and being in the offensive zone. And, and it's interesting because you say that's the new style, and I get it. I, I think we appreciate that as the new style of defending. I don't think we appreciated what a good defender Paul Coffey was, for right. instance, because he was rushing the puck all the time. And then nowadays, because we have more statistics, we have more analytics, we have more ability to process information, and there's more information at our fingertips, we realize that, wow, like that is 
it's beyond just impressive to watch when a guy skates the puck like that. It actually is incredibly effective. And, and so we, we are appreciating that more. And then on the flip side, we realize that when someone gets hemmed in and when they're, when it's like they're bleeding shot uh, chances against and, and scoring chances against, it's really not conducive to success. So you could change up the pairings. You could, you could hope for some health, but that's not something you're really being proactive about as a coach because you're just waiting. It's, yeah. it's a time thing, right? Guys are getting back and you slowly but surely players are going to return into the lineup. But what we've seen time and time again with the Canucks is as, as you look like, okay, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. This is, this was the funniest thing I always found the last two years doing the job, doing the pregame show and postgame show is we'd start talking about after a game, we'd be like, all right, so-and-so is due back next game. Who's going to get sent down or whatever? And then Corey Hirsch would always remind us, like, well, let's not worry about that because someone's probably going to get hurt again. <laughs> right. And that, that's the reality, right? And, and for whatever reason, especially this time of year with this team, there's more injuries and they're going to come. And so you're never going to have a perfect lineup. I did think the Canucks would be able to sustain a higher level of play longer this year because of more depth. But it's still, if you're going up against top teams and, and you're going up against healthy teams that are playing well, it's really difficult to be at your best. And for Travis Green, he is under more scrutiny this year because he has more players at his disposal. That's right. You can't make the excuse of, hey, we're a rebuilding team. This is a team that is lacking in depth, is lacking in talent, that's lacking in two-way players. And yes, they've had injuries, but now it's incumbent on him to make enough changes for this team to keep its head above water. Or at least he has to be part of the solution and not be part of the problem. And I'm not saying he's been part of the problem, but... Their onus is on him as well. So I'd like to see the D pairs change. And one of the things that I was so concerned by early in the season, despite the team playing well, Alex Edler playing this many minutes. And yes, he's been able to avoid it in the injury bug, but he doesn't look as effective as he did about two and a half weeks ago. And is it a surprise considering he's 33 and he's playing 25 minutes a game, which is the highest amount of minutes he's had average wise in his career. Yeah, it, it's a lot, right? And, and, and a part of everything, a part of the, you know, a big piece of the signing of, of Tyler Myers, the emergence of, of Quinn Hughes, and and uh, even bringing a guy like Jordy Ben into the mix was supposed to alleviate some of the pressures on a guy like Edler and, and Chris Tanev as well, who oftentimes in the past couple of years have been overused. Um, that's a great point. So right now, why, why is he playing more than ever? Like, it, right. it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, I, I get it if you're the coach. You look down the bench, you're like, Okay, hey, I want my veteran pair out there. And and they were so good early in the season that it's like, that was a danger. They were so good that it was tempting to overplay them. Yeah, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. It, it's You're like, well, it's working. Let's keep it up. Keep going, keep going. But you got to realize when when it's just diminishing returns. And, and and part of that, though, is that experimentation, right? Okay, where, where do we settle it out? Um, home versus road, how do you manage that? Finding another pair that you're fine to match up with against other team's top lines. It's... There's all of those aspects. And and in theory, you would look at this year's decor and say, all right, I'm as a coach, I'm more comfortable getting outside of those matchups because I have more depth and I have guys with more experience and a higher execution rate. So it should be okay. But it is really tempting to go back to your veteran D pair. So whether it's a, a change up, which I, I would expect will happen at some point, but I also expect at some point they'll end up back together. You want to see the minutes be managed, especially with Edler. Uh, due to his age and his injury history. I think I think for him to be at his best, he's got to be closer to 20 minutes rather than 25. I love to see Myers with Hughes because at times I was really concerned by both guys being offensively minded. Can they not work? But every time I see them together, I've been encouraged. I know the game against Dallas, nobody looked good. So there was a few shifts where they even got exposed. Put Stetcher with Edler and then Tanev and Jordy Ben together. And at least as long as you separate Myers and Edler and feel comfortable playing each guy 20 minutes, that might bring a bit more balance to that top 60 group. Well, and that's, that's always, it's always the question, right? Do you, do you want to balance out your lines or your D pairs, or do you want to sort of load them up? Well, is it really loading them up if they're, if Edler and, and Tanev aren't, or Edler and Myers, sorry, aren't performing at the level you yeah. want anyway? So maybe it's something up. I, I think a shakeup is, is warranted. Um, and like you said, like against Dallas, like especially when they made those changes, there's score effects in play too, right? It's yeah. really hard to know what what you're actually watching is is what's going to translate forward. You're hoping for a spark. You're hoping for something. Uh, I I think, and the other thing, and I get it. I get the idea of Gwyn Hughes is going to have some great games. He's going to make some mistakes. Tanev is is a steadier veteran presence than maybe a Tyler Myers is, or he's a more of a known quantity or commodity to this coaching staff. But now they're getting to know Tyler Myers a little more. 
I think it's worth exploring that and, and seeing if those two can, can find some chemistry and be effective together. And we can't let, let the forwards off the hook either because of the defensive issues. The back pressure is nowhere near as good. You see the centermen being lost in transition. You're not seeing quite them coming back and back checking the way they need to. And yeah, part of it is Beagle had his first game back. No, Brandon Sutter is good at that. And Adam got it. I like him a lot. And there's a lot about his game that's encouraging offensively. But you kind of see when he's in a position where he has to play harder minutes defensively and he's got to make that presence known, he struggles at times. And Bo, defensively this year, hasn't been great. So all of a sudden, you take Sutter out, you take Beagle out. Is it a big surprise the Canucks are far worse with back pressure? Well, it's, it's no surprise at all. I mean, anytime you take important pieces at a certain role on your team out of the lineup, you're going to have issues there. And and then it's that increased responsibility. So. Yeah, we've been we've been celebrating Bo Horvat defensively some games, right? Like, well, he's took all these faceoffs one game. He does all this, plays all these minutes. But is that sustainable? And is that the way to get the bet the most out of your your second line center? Probably not. And so, a healthy Beagle and Sutter is supposed to alleviate defensive responsibility off Horvat and Pedersen. And when either one of those guys, but especially both of them are out, then it throws everything into flux and it makes it very, very difficult to maximize your lineup. Instead, you're almost just, you're you're essentially in a very defensive posture in, in how you're approaching the game. So that that's a, a part of it as well. And and the other thing about the the veterans in the defensive side of the game, and it is something that is is really difficult to, like it's, it's hard to rate sort of that hockey sense, especially for the defensive IQ on any mm-hmm. type of, chart or analytics yeah, statement or anything like that there is so much nuance to it in in back checking and understanding you know the defensive side getting position on a player uh how to tie up just little tricks that veterans know and there is yes maybe they're not quite as fleet of foot anymore or more injury prone or whatever it may be but they make up for it with their hockey sense and and that is something that you just it's really difficult to quantify but it settles down your group because you might get that stall on the boards in the defensive zone that much quicker. And we spent the first part of the podcast talking about the offensive zone and the forecheck and that next player. Well, in the defensive side of the puck, sometimes it's the first player, right? It's the stall. When that happens, when you get a break in their play in the offensive team's mm-hmm. play, and then the next guy's in on that puck to, to retrieve it and get going the other way. And removing veterans out from the defensive side of the puck is really, really difficult. Sometimes everything hits, the young guys grasp it right away, and some games you see that, and then some games it's like, all right, they're just not quite as sharp anymore, or it's whatever, partway through a really long, grueling trip, and the guys, the young players don't haven't been through that before, so they're like, all right, I'm waking up on a Tuesday or wherever, and, and I don't have my legs today. How do I still contribute and, and show up and play at that high level? It's part of the learning curve. The analytics are so valuable, and you got, and I cite them all the time. I use them all the time. But they're also a poor indicator for certain players. Like when you look at the overall shot shares for a guy like Sutter and a guy like Jay Beagle, it's like, hey, these guys don't really impress you. But when they do specific things really well, like Jay Beagle never loses a board battle, and he's really good in the faceoff dot as well. Defensively, he knows where to be at the right time. Brandon Sutter, similar qualities as well, and especially in the defensive side. And it's easy to look at the shot chart and, and his scoring chances, but even the high-danger scoring chances are not all equal because, and this is something I want to get into when it comes to goaltending as well with you, Aldi. If you get the east-west passes going before you get that shot going, they may both count as a high-danger chance, but the more the puck goes east and west before that shot in a high danger chance, the high danger zone goes on net, the more chance it has of going in. So not even not even all high danger chances are equal. And I've noticed there's far more east-west passes in the Canucks offensive zone, in the Canucks defensive zone now, when they don't have those same forwards who are good at stopping things like that. Well, and, that, and that's that's part of it, right? So sometimes you, you can watch a game and and Everything can look the same to you, but it's it's a stick position maybe. And, mm-hmm. and the way a player is flushing the offensive player down the boards and, and the way they're angling and where their stick is is preventing a certain pass. And if the pass never happens, you don't realize that it was even a, even something that could happen, right? So you it's really pronounced on the penalty kill because guys spend a lot of time yeah. thinking about, all right, I, I want to take away the next most dangerous player, right? I, it, I'd rather this guy stand here looking at me with the puck than move it east-west, like you said, or or get us moving and open up the box and, and be able to to penetrate through the seams. So you you want to keep your stick in good lanes and, and in the passing lanes, but it's the same from a defensive structure point of view, five on five as well. And the good veteran players, especially those two, they're, they're very good at that. And it's a very subtle, nuanced thing, again, where it's about that experience, it's about 
guys who pride themselves in being defensive. So they're, those are the details that they pick up and they realize, all right, that's, that's uh, not, not so much a Brandon Sutter because he was a high pick. And, but a guy like Beagle, for sure, carved out a career of being a, a more defensive specialist and a guy you can rely on and trust in certain aspects. So uh, they're far better at taking away the seams, realizing where the danger, the next dangerous player is, and breaking that down. And you're right, the Canucks are, are uh, to me, the quality of chances against have gone up. And that, is, that makes it really, really difficult on the goaltenders. Because if you just look at the chance shares alone, they're pretty similar. If anything, Vancouver is giving up slightly less high danger chances, so to speak, this season. Last year, went and looked at the numbers. But what we don't have is the real data that shows how often a puck is moving east and west. How do you get the goalie moving within the crease? And how tired does a goalie get before that shot goes on goal? Or how out of position he goes? And just anecdotally, watching this team try to defend the last few games, they are giving up far more in the middle of the ice. Well, and, and so what, and that's and that's where it's also important to know know the source of the data too, right? And and I think that that's something where teams are starting to realize. That's why they have proprietary information mm-hmm. that they're they're starting to own their own analytics data rather than than just outsourcing it. Or they understand, okay, this is a place we trust, so we're going to take our information from here. And you're absolutely right because in in some some uh, databases or whatever whatever it is wherever it exists certain things aren't treated the same. It, it can be charted the exact same way, but it comes from a different type of source and someone different is doing it in, in terms of the information gathering. And so what, uh, what we see is that east-west movement, it increases the scoring chance exponentially. And, it, and it's so much more difficult for the goaltender if they've got to cross the middle of the ice. And that's something we've talked about for, for the last couple of years, Sat, and working together is how much harder that is. So if you can't defend that midline of the ice, then it's far less not only is there more east-west movement for the goalie that they have to keep up with, and, and essentially there's all these angle changes and rotation that has to occur, but it's also less predictable. And I remember when I first went to the Boston Bruins, the way Claude Julien had that team defending, almost nothing crossed the middle of the ice. They, he give up shots from the outside, mm-hmm. um, you know, let the guys shoot from the boards, coming down the, on the rush, let the, guy, the puck carrier shoot, take away the middle, take away the midline. And as a goalie, you loved it. Because not only is there nothing, no one open, or the guys might be open behind you, but they're never getting the puck. But you also are getting more easy shots, so it's just pumping your stats up. Like your save percentage skyrockets yeah. because it's so much more predictable. And so you really start to realize and, and you feel those results and then it pumps your confidence and everything starts feeling good, right? So w- when a team stops defending the midline and they aren't able to, to uh, break up those passes, it gets so difficult. And then, and then even that easy shot that should be easy which is the puck carrier coming right at you gets more difficult because you have sec you have doubt it's like okay is that guy going to be open is is my d going to stop that or and then you start kind of peeking over your shoulder and then, oh, before you know it it's in short side or whatever it may be so it it just creates that doubt in your mind and that is that is so much a part of this is when things aren't going well you're second guessing and that's the goaltenders that's the defenders that's the forwards on the back check and when things are going well there's so much more trust and cohesiveness in, in, in the lineup. And that confidence is such a, big, such a big part of everything. Even defending. We talk about playing offense with confidence. There's something to be said about defending with confidence as well. Because one of the things that I've noticed recently too is the Canucks defenders are almost seeding the center of the ice too much. When, a play, when the opposition forwards come at them, they're kind of backpedaling a bit. And that's okay to do to invite the guy to get in front and then close that gap and take the puck away. You're almost baiting a guy to come to the middle of the ice and then you step up and take the puck away or, or tie the player up. But if you're, being, if you're scared of being walked and that's why you're backpedaling a bit too much, that's when the trouble comes in. I'm noticing the Canucks defenders aren't defending with the same confidence they had earlier in the season as well. Well, it's all connected, right? So you, you hit the nail on the head 10, 15 minutes ago when you talked about the back check not being as good. So when the, when the D don't feel and sense that back pressure. You got to remember mm-hmm. a defenseman sitting there and the rush is coming at them. They see everything, right? They can, they can see what's going on in front of them. They see every player on the ice, except their goaltender, right? Ideally, no one's behind them and they're backing up. And if they see that the back checker is right on that guy, they're confident. Stand up. Let's yeah. stop this rush. Let's make a stand before the red line. Let's force a dump. That could be an icing. That's what you essentially want. And as, if you don't have that back pressure, it's, it's not even the fear. It is partially the fear of be, getting walked, but it's not even that. It's just like, okay, where's my support? Keep this play in front of me until there's more, more help, more time. Because you, you have confidence to stand up if you have that back pressure because you don't worry about getting walked because 
the, the backtracking forward is layering in behind right. you. And that's almost essentially what you're inviting. You're inviting that guy to almost get that stall or you slow him down so that the next guy can come in behind and either take him out or take the puck. As soon as you don't have that back pressure, your confidence goes down. And then that becomes your sort of habit is, okay, back off, back off. And when you start backing off as a defense core, all bad things just happen all around. There's there, Because it opens up shooting lanes, it opens up time and space for the forwards. And the forwards in the National Hockey League are so good. Even even like the guys lower in the lineup, they are so skilled that they they want time and space in front of the D. They want that because then they can start going east-west, which we just talked about how much more difficult that is for everyone involved. And they can do a lot more creative things. When you're on them, you take away time and space. It is so much more difficult to to create an offensive chance. So it comes from the back check. It comes from the D being confident in that back check, confident in themselves, confident in their skating. And as soon as it falls apart, and that's why when teams get sort of mired in slumps, it really can go sideways in a hurry because the, it just that confidence erodes in a really big hurry. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, what are we doing here? And, and then everyone starts, and I'm not saying this is what's happened with the Canucks, but I've been on teams like this where everyone's like, you know, the, the forwards and the forward coaches are yelling down at the D coaches to do something like, well, start backtracking guys right. and get pucks out, get pucks in. Like it's just nonstop, stop turning it over. And then it, it, it's contagious. As much as the winning is contagious, it's almost more contagious on the negative side of things. And that was one of the fears about losing despite having a good process because then you start losing faith in what you've been doing and obviously some key injuries as well. Just quickly to build off and actually tie off what we were discussing about the overall style of play for the Canucks recently. How much of these struggles for the Canucks goalies is them struggling or because the, the overall team play has declined? Do, do you want me to build off it or tie off it? Uh, tie it off. Build off it and then tie it off. Is okay. what I tried to well, say, but I wasn't. No, that's fine. If, if you want, that's an extra extra ask, but that's fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> do I have enough time? You know, yeah, absolutely. We, we always have time, Sat. It's our show. Yes, true that. And I'm stalling right now. Anyway, um, I, it's, it's a really interesting situation in net for the Canucks because Jacob Markstrom had a really, really hot start to the year as the Demko. Markstrom's cooled off a bit, but you're right. Like a, part of it is, I would say this. I was asked this question last night. Is, is it that the, uh, Jacob Markstrom has really fallen off here and he's playing that much worse? Right. Or is it like, the, the team is just isn't defending as well. And I, it's a bit of both. I think it's both. And there's a, there's a sad reality in the National Hockey League when your goaltending comes back down to earth from being really, really, really good. And so I'm not saying Markstrom has been bad, but when you're playing at such an elite level and for as long as Markstrom did, really since the start of December last year, mid-December, he had an incredible run. When you look at from a, from a you know, the statistics, whether it's advanced stats or just the raw data of like save percentage goals against, he was doing really well. He was playing at that level long enough that it became expected. And it became something they're like, all right, this is, we're counting on this. Also one of the big keys going into this season, there was, there was a couple of factors. If the Canucks were going to take a massive step this year and be a playoff contender, goaltending had to be basically at the level it was at last year, especially the second half. And early on, it looked like that was going to be the case for Jacob Markstrom. I would say he's probably not as sharp as he was. Um, he's not as dialed in, but it's also part of what yeah. we talked about there in the first half where it's like this team, there's less predictability. This team is giving up higher quality chances in my view, just from from my eye test watching the game. It looks like there's more difficulty going on uh, around Jacob Markstrom in terms of what he has to handle on a day-to-day basis, which makes it really tough. And the same holds true for Thatcher Demko as well. We spent some time when you joined us on the program with Andrew Walker on Sports and 650 on Monday. That, yeah, blocker side, it seems like the book is out on Demko a little bit, and that's what the Avs are focusing on especially. But that might also be us nitpicking one certain thing when the chances were still pretty high danger for the Avs in that game. Well, yeah, it, it, it is funny the way the way te- or, you know, you'll watch and teams will pick up on something and then they really hone in on it. And once in a while, it'll really work. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, this is an issue. And then other teams will try it and you won't even really notice it because he'll stop them all to that side. Like, the Avs have some pretty good shooters. Um, McKinnon probably scores wherever he shoots that puck in OT. Yeah. And I, w- I would say it's actually less about him shooting blocker and more about the fact that he cut in and saw that Demko actually moved too much. He gave up short side. And I, that could have happened the other side 
I don't think it was a, a byproduct of it being his blocker. It was just that McKinnon was overwhelming everyone on the ice and just decided to do what he wanted. But you're right. I mean, you can you can see those things. But I, I think it is a little bit that would probably be a little bit overblown because I, I do think Demko's going to work through that. He's going he's gonna to work. He's going to make sure he puts the time in. He's still developing. I have a different sort of standard for Demko than I do for Markstrom because of where they're at in their careers. But they they both have overall, I think, been pretty good. But Markstrom is, like, they need him to be really, really good. They need him to be, like, top 10 material type of goaltender for them to have a chance in order to to take that massive step that sort of everyone's expecting and everyone saw coming after the first month of the season. They're like, all right, this is this is happening. This is for real. And a lot of people through the lineup, not just, just Jacob Markstrom, they've regressed. And that is something that's a little bit concerning. So now it's how quickly can he get that back on track? For Jacob Markstrom, and here's where I don't want to come off as sounding like an asshole, to be honest, but he's gone through a lot. No, absolutely. You know, and um, I feel bad for everything he's gone through, but at the same time, the reality is you're playing in a National Hockey League season. Every game matters. There's two points in the line. You're trying to keep your head above water. And I'm not saying take Markstrom out and make him the backup goalie, but in the short term, is there a risk in giving Demko a bit more time as Markstrom tries to figure everything out on and off the ice and also not losing him as far as his buy-in goes and belief in the team as well? I don't think so, and here's why. And There's a couple of reasons. I I think you have this honest conversation with him. Like Emotionally, there's a lot going on, right? With the passing of his father, uh, the the fact he left the team to go and spend some time with him before his passing. Like there's a lot of, a lot of, off-ice situations that we don't even want to... I can't even try to wrap my head yeah. around the emotions, right? So you you get that from that point of view. And, and if it's something that you're up front with him about and you're like, hey, we want to work through this with you, like, we, we get it, we still believe in you, then I, I would imagine the player would be on board with that. The other aspect is we've seen time and time again how, and whether it was Ian Clark or even Dan Cloutier before uh, Ian Clark came on the scene, how Markstrom would benefit from some scaled back playing time and increased practice time. He would That would be the way he'd get those resets. Now, last year in the second half, he needed fewer and fewer of those. They found a rhythm in terms of, of how Demko and Markstrom would work together and Ian Clark, and they, they figured something out. Well, that rhythm might have changed because something very significant in Jacob Markstrom's life has occurred. So that rhythm might be a little bit different yeah. now, and that's fine. And that might be for two weeks. It might be for two months. There's nothing wrong with that. And... And I'm not saying that this to to say, all right, you have to play Demko because of this. But on the flip side, Thatcher Demko has shown that he probably deserves a little bit more. And and that's okay. And I, I think it's one of those situations where you if you're upfront and honest with it, then you 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 walk everyone through it and you you stick with something. And and it could be alternating games for a week or two. It could be, you know, just changing the split a little bit. And and the other reason I think that this is something that could be a positive is because you're, we're seeing this more and more around the league now. And we've talked about this before. We talked about the Boston Bruins and how they essentially almost rotated and, and split uh, Rask and uh, Yarrow Halak last year. And when you look at, you look at both the Islanders and the Dallas Stars who both had Vesna finalists last year and their, their two goalies on those rosters played almost equal. Robin Lehner and, and Thomas Grice played almost the same amount of games. And then same thing in Dallas with uh, Bishop and Hudobin. Yet Bishop and Lehner are, are nominees for the Vesna, right? So it's not like it's unprecedented where it's like, hey, we have to, we have to break ground here and do this. It's, it's something where I, I think you, it's worth exploring. And, and I think there could be positives that come out of it because Markstrom's going to get back to his fundamentals a little bit more because he's going to have that increased work. And, and the one thing that I always found, and again, so this isn't, this isn't me saying it'll 100% work for Jacob Markstrom, but I always found whenever I struggled in net, getting back to my technical base and getting back to something that I felt control over, it inevitably helped me on, on the ice. And, and that is my goalie time, my me time. Goalie coach and myself going out and working on things that I believe are going to help my game. And they may not hurt or help that next game, but at least over the course of time, you, you get back into your rhythm. And so there's there's a number of benefits to it. Plus, you you see a little bit more from Demko as well, and you you help progress his game because there may also come a point at some time this year where you've got to go the other way and go Markstrom more and Demko a little less. Well, he's built up a little bit of of that game taste and that experience, 
so that he can probably sit a little bit longer later on this season. And, and there's always that give and take with the goalies. It's going to be fascinating to keep an eye on because it's also a contract year for Jacob Markstrom. Yep. And I don't know what the, what the right answer is in a situation like this. I feel for him as a human being, but you also have to understand from a team's perspective, they're trying to win hockey games too. And I'll, I'll say this on it. As much as I'm advocating or, or I'm agreeing that this is, this is a possible scenario that could be positive, I think it's extremely important that the organization, and I'm not saying they're going to, but they don't just, you don't just turn your back on a player, right? Yeah. Like in this situation, like you, you have to make the player feel supported through it and make them feel important through it because you, you brought up a good question. Like, could you risk losing a player in this situation? And, and I think that that exists if you don't manage it properly. You have to make sure that you understand there's a human element to this. And the National Hockey League has gotten far better at that over the years. I still think there's room to grow. But you're right, there's, that, there's the balance of it being the highest level of, of a professional sport and everything that comes along with that, but we're still dealing with human beings and it's important that you give people the time to manage and, and deal with real human emotions and in, in, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, it's very difficult. I know we're, we're all thinking of Jacob Markstrom, hoping he pulls through and obviously the team getting back on a winning track as well. All right, we have some time left. Let's get to Ask Alex Anything. Uh, I forgot my question. All right. The first question we got, and let's keep it to the goaltenders. Babbage Dash, what do you think of Markstrom's new mask? I like it. I like it. I, it's interesting. A little bit of uh, mask. Mask envy? Mask. No. Oh. Well, all right. <laughs> Hair envy for sure. Mask <laughs> merry-go-round this year for Markstrom. Oh, it does. He's, okay. he's worn three different ones. Yeah, he has. Is, is there something I up I haven't on seen that? the ears, so that's no, good. That's positive. Yeah. No, I, I do like it. It's uh, it's very white on the one side and very blue on the other. Um, but the one, I always, when a goalie changes their mask, I want them to have some early success. Yeah. Especially if I like the paint job because if a couple games, a couple six goal games happen in it, you never know. Yes. You might not want to wear it anymore. A superstitious Change goalies. of brands though, which is interesting. Yeah. Change how, companies. How does, how does that work? Is it just like a sponsorship thing or is it like a feel thing? I believe so. I believe the one he's in now is a pro's choice, which I think he wore before he went to Bauer, and he was head to toe Bauer for mm-hmm. a couple of years, and then he went to CCM. So that it could be part of that. Um, I don't know. Interesting. Have to find out more on that. Yeah, I know goalies find this stuff far more interesting than the average fan. Like goalie equipment, they they all looks the same. Well, does it matter? But apparently, it matters to the goalie. It doesn't look the same. That's yeah, no. <laughs> so close minded of you. <laughs> all right, Tim Andrews. Could we see a European team in the NHL in the future? There's talk of the NFL having a team in London. I never say never, but I just, logistically, I don't see how it works. The only way I could think of is if you have a actual European division and they essentially come to North America for, say, two or three one, one month stints and play a bunch of games and then go back. But you have to have an extended stay on either side to make it happen. You can't be flying back and forth within a week or two weeks. I just, there's so many hurdles for me. Yeah. And in terms of like, are you, are you limiting the player pool that would want to go there in free agency? Are you like, how do you, I, I don't know. I, that to me just has collective bargaining nightmare written all over it. <laughs> it. It has to be so extremely worth it for all parties. Like for the PA to sign off on that, like it, it has to be massive. You, you, we're going to see expansion fees go through the roof. If that were to be something the PA would be willing to accept, it would have to be so big and just be so lucrative for the league. Or other, otherwise, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, it, it may have to be like an American League, National League thing in baseball where you essentially come over for a handful, you know, maybe 10, 15 games you play in North America. The rest is your conference in Europe and then you meet in the cup final or something. And that's such a big undertaking. Would, that they, have, would, they, have, would they have different rules, like a different position that only exists Could in you Europe? Imagine? <laughs> yeah, right. Like uh, you have a, what's a DH equivalent, for instance, right? Now we're really just killing now we're time. Getting, yeah, yeah. Now we are. All right. Hockey Hawkins, do you think Gaudette can thrive with an extended look as a third line center? I think he can. I, I don't like I've I've liked a lot of what Adam Gaudet has done. I, I think he's he's showing. This is a really interesting situation that Canucks are in with him because, hell, at when their team's healthy and they've got Sutter and Beagle, I don't know that Gaudet is better at center than those guys. And and, and all the things that mm-hmm. we talked about in terms of the defensive side of the puck and that experience. But how do you get that experience? You got to play. I can see him thriving in it, but I think we also we've seen some ups and downs. We've seen some games where it hasn't been as effective big part of it and this is the issue when the team isn't healthy you can't insulate him at all 
the same way you can when they're when they're yeah. at full health. And when they're at full health, him down the middle doesn't make a lot of sense because of the guys you do have down the middle. So that begs the question, if he continues to play well, does that mean something? Does that force Jim Banning's hand? Or does it at least open up opportunities? And if the team continues to struggle, then maybe you use one of those pieces to bring in something to help in another area. Like that is a real possibility down the road. Um, but I've, I've liked what I've seen from Adam Agudat. And more than anything, I like the fact that he took his assignment in stride, went down, had some success, came back and has been playing well. It doesn't seem to be moping or pouting about some of the uncertainty in his in his day-to-day life and career right now because he, he's trusting the process and he's trusting big long-term, big picture, that he's going to be okay. And if he's a winger that can play well offensively, that's still a very positive outcome for a player drafted in the fifth round. And one of the things I've been so impressed by with him is offensive instincts in the offensive zone. He knows where to be. He knows what reads to make. He goes in front of the net. He's got a good stick. There's a lot to like about him when he's set up in the offensive zone, except for the face-off aspect, of course, and the defensive side. But offensively, he knows what to do. I, I agree with that. And, and that's why I've kind of liked this in some ways sort of spot duty because I, I do think there's there's times with young players where the grind of the full season is almost, it's overwhelming. It's a really steep mm-hmm. learning curve. And therefore, again, you're not you're not maximizing your game. And you're just like, okay, I'm out here surviving each and every night. He's taken a step in terms of his offensive instincts, which is, to me, that's the biggest question with Adam Goddard is what's his ceiling offensively? And we, we see him, you know, he won the Hobie Bakers last year at college. Can he even come close to being an offensive-minded guy? Even if it's a third-line guy, can he, can he put up some points? I think we're starting to see that that potential really exists. It's I almost wish that one of Sutter or Beagle were a left shot because if that were the case, you could see a scenario where he could play on the wing with those guys but maybe take some of the face-offs on a strong side and they could sort of ease him into a center, almost a slash winger slash center it's role. It's like an apprentice, apprenticeship exactly. Almost, right? and, and But the fact that they're both righties and then he's a righty as well, it just and you're, you know, you're not going to do that with Horvat or Pedersen. So it just... It, you almost think that that would be ideal. But I, I like Godet's development curve here. He, he's been doing a lot of really good things. Uh, let's get to a few more questions for hashtag Ask Alex Anything. Francisco Var- Varos, how many more games will Berchi get before he gets sent down? It might depend on health of yeah. other people, right? That's so essentially it's, what it's, it comes down yeah, to. Yeah, and I, I, was, I was really hoping he was going to come up and do something, make some noise, and we haven't seen that. Um, he, he's been okay. Mm-hmm. But that's yeah. that's Travis Green talk for what was like oh he's been average. average I don't know like he hasn't he hasn't moved the needle no and at the end of the day that's that's what this this team needs and that's what Sven Berchi needed in order to reestablish himself as an everyday NHLer and as much as we say yeah send Louis Erickson down if he doesn't get anything from Berchi at even strength or no production he's going to look at it and say well, at least Erickson can kill penalties and I know that makes people <laughs> pull their hair out of their heads but I wouldn't be surprised we hear that, hear that same argument unless Berchi plays a lot better. Time for another. It was knocked over your water bottle. Yeah, That's almost. what that was in the background. I was very demonstrative. Yeah. All right, uh, Jeff Mallow. You were, you were pulling hair out of your head. I was. I was. Yeah. I was don't not, do I it, got a, I got a haircut today, so I don't need to I pull I see that. Out. That's why you were late. That's why, that is yeah. actually why I was late. Uh, oh, no, sorry. Can we record a little later? I'm getting, <laughs> no, on, said, I'm getting a fresh fade. I had it booked about a week ago, and then. You had a high you know, top fade, like kid and play. It's not that, that much of no, a fade. Yeah. All right, uh, Gilligan's Isle. Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> I, always, I always love it. That's extreme confidence when a bald guy starts ripping hairdos. Well, you should be confident for many reasons. Well, thanks, man. <laughs> Gilligan's Isle uh, is asking about Nikolai Goldobin, saying, can you explain to Canucks fans why calling, calling up Goldie is not the answer? How much more of an impact can Roussel, Sutter, and Furlan have? And then Jeff Mallow says, when will Goldobin get called up? He's had 16 points in 15 games. So, Well, Jeff, I'm supposed to explain to you why that doesn't, doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, Goldobin is a guy. I, I would love to say, yeah, this guy's he's figured it out. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mind giving him another look at some point. Like if, if the injuries continued and you were to say, all right, let's yeah. swap Berchi for him and see. But again, it's like, where do you, where do you put him in your lineup? Like that's... Sven Berchi, I could, I get, um, you also feel a little bit, as an organization, you feel like you owe Sven Berchi a little bit more than Nikolai Goldobin and say, all right, like you're down, now let's come back up, see what you can do. Goldie's tough. He doesn't have that defensive side of his game almost at all. Um, and if the offense isn't there at the NHL, then where does he slot in? I would like to see him get another chance though, but I don't know that that happens because of all those guys coming back off off uh, injury that, that the first uh, submission he mentioned, like... Roussel, I think, can make a big impact. Mm-hmm. I think Furland, Furland will be interesting because it's like, what Furland are we getting? 
Um, and and is he going to? I really thought he was starting to find some comfort and making some good plays, even though maybe the production wasn't at a level that some people would have expected. Like I think he was starting to find a role, find a bit of his his rhythm, and then he kind of got out. He's out of the lineup, so that'll be interesting as well. But I do think that the depth really hurts. Obviously, like anyone in the AHL that's trying to make an impact, trying to come back, and then every day that goes along for a guy like Goldobin that they don't get back. One of the other younger players down in Utica is making strides and taking steps and moving closer or past him on the depth chart. And that's the reality of pro hockey and, and the way teams are looking at these young players. Goldobin's sort of a guy who needs to, I think he needs to go above and beyond to get another chance. Whereas a guy like, I'm not saying he's, he's not worthy of it, but a guy like Zach McEwen or some of the other young guys that the team has has brighter or higher hopes for in the future than Nick like Goldobin, they're likely to start getting the looks ahead of a guy like Goldie. Uh, final question goes to Corbin Tuck. What's for lunch and am I invited? Well, we're recording at uh, 2 o'clock. What's 3 o'clock now? 3 o'clock now. So lunch is done. What did you have for lunch? What did I have for lunch? I made, um, I, well, it's, it kind of takes us back to our, our inaugural podcast. Oh. Uh, inaugural podcast. When we talked pizza and tacos. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, I had a, uh, we had fajitas last night Ooh, so leftovers yes but i also so it was a sort of a brunch a mexican mm. brunch or a munch is that right would that be right munch i'm not i sure. don't know so i uh is that politically correct even <laughs> i don't, I don't, even I don't know. know i don't even know sure <laughs> and um corn tortillas scrambled eggs mixed in with the fajita toppings or innards i guess and then mm. Treat yourself. It was good. I <laughs> know it was. That was a solo mission, actually. Yeah. So, Scarf down three of those. We'll try to do a uh, Canucks pod lunch and invite everybody over once. We'll try that. We'll we'll see if we can build something. We will okay. record a pod. I'm trying and have to lunch. CP lunch. CP lunch. Canucks punch. Okay. Yeah. I, Canucks I, punch. Canucks punch. There you go. And look at you mixing words together today. <laughs> that's, that's what, what you do. <laughs> Take the marbles out of your mouth. All right. Thanks. I've for been listening. out of practice a couple a couple times like that. You a know, a little bit. Yeah. Just to make everyone puke in there. <laughs> As I as I make those noises in your headset, sorry about that. Yeah, I have to go and have my lunch. It's been I haven't had a chance to have lunch yet. So I'm going to have one right well, seriously, now. What were you? You had a haircut? No, what no, else? seriously. What else were you doing? No, there? no, no. I had I had one twenty. I'm one fifteen on a hair, haircut appointment, so I had to get my haircut, and then I had to drive out to get it. So it's you know, wow. Like, like right. I had to drive five minutes. Really, okay. it's not that far. It's yeah. just you I was gonna say like you you live in an area of town that has haircutteries. But, uh, like, but it's I not go- like you. But you know me, I'm loyal. I've been go- I've gone to the same hairdresser <laughs> for like a decade. Loyal. I've been going to for over a decade the same hairdresser. I yeah. don't go to anybody. Yeah. Is it one of those ones that has like the little like cars and little horses and stuff? <laughs> like it's a little kid. I've been going there my whole life. I'm loyal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's cartoons on the TVs. No, none of that. Uh-huh. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another edition of the Canucks Pod. We'll be back again next week. I can't believe that guy. First he puts words into my mouth, then he takes them out without so much as a buy your leave. It's also very unsanitary. 